Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... So if we think about that manifesto against ed tech, and I start out saying, I don't have the time to learn this now. So what is it that I truly want out of this technology? That is going to influence now that we're in August, September, and we're in this space for a longer period of time. And whatever normal is, is not going to be that anymore. We're going to have more of this technology. We're going to have more hybrid or high flex. What do we need the technology to do? to get to that core piece of uh, transforming people, like you mentioned, so that they can be you know, citizens of, of justice and happiness. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today is an award-winning blogger on the topics of educational technology and innovation. As an education administrator for over a decade, he has been leading people towards a shared vision of equity and access in learning environments, specifically distance education and educational innovation. He has worked closely with formal and non-formal learning institutions of all sizes, designing and implementing strategies and programs to enhance learning and teaching. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Rolin Mo, Dean of Academic Support and Learning Technologies at Skyline College and Director of Distance Education Initiative at Mateo County Community College District. Under his leadership, they have trained over 1,000 faculty, staff and administration and prepared them well to provide effective online learning programs to their students in the upcoming fall. During our conversation, we unpack the manifesto Rolling Road against EdTech during the recent emergency online pivot, as he shares his experience harnessing the power of people and the importance of communication, customized training, and hands-on support and guidance. Tune in to learn from a scholar, a practitioner, and an innovator who believes that the best education environments provide ample opportunities for learners to engage and for experts to facilitate, fill knowledge gaps, further skill development and stay out of the way. Let's dive right in. Hello, Rolin. Welcome to Impact Learning. Thank you for having me, Maria. Let's start with your childhood. What's uh, a favorite memory related to learning? Uh, it's a wonderful question. I love how you start. Um, I remember being in the seventh grade and I just moved schools and I was trying to get to know the other students, trying to get to know the teachers. And I was enrolled in a typing class and they were changing the typing room from typewriters to computers. And the typing instructor was struggling not with the software aspect of it, but the hardware capabilities. And I grew up uh, with learning disability dysgraphia. And so the accommodation that I was given for that was a computer. They said, here's a computer. This will solve your dysgraphia. No one told me how to use the computer. No one told me what the relationship of the computer was to dysgraphia. 
So I had to figure that all out for myself as a second grader. But in the seventh grade, I had enough understanding that I went to the teacher and I said, well, I've done some stuff with computers. Let me see what I can do. And, you know, was able to kind of work out a couple things. And this was the this was the early 90s uh, and was able to get the machines networked. So they were able to run the software. Didn't think anything of it. But I noticed from that point on when there were computer questions, I was the person who was brought into that conversation. And so what's interesting for me with my career now in educational technology, I never truly had a love of technology or computers, but it was something that was just always part of what I was doing. Uh, so it just made sense in my schema that computers were going to be a part of my future, whether it was a passion of mine or not. Mm-hmm. And how is the love with technology developing now? Uh, It's an interesting time to be working with technology. I think that especially during a global pandemic when uh, we are seeing significant remote instruction, distance education, uh, having that understanding of what a computer can do in the short term, but also the potential. What is the ideal? What people were talking about when telecommunications was available, whether it was the Usenet systems of the early 90s or the early web, when campuses had tilde web pages for students to be able to engage and build their own their own contents uh, remembering that that there was this idea of community and connection in what we did uh, in an online space and trying to focus on that because it can be so easy to try and put solutions into problems that don't necessarily fit so what is that goal that we had when we first experienced wow what can we do when we bring people together? regardless of their geographic considerations, come together to uh, work together and solve problems. So I always try and keep that in mind when I'm struggling with getting an LTI to load or when I'm struggling with uh, having uh, you know, our student information system integrate with our learning management system or any other of the perfunctory aspects of what we do with technology. Uh, remember, there is a much larger vision and uh, potential for what we're all doing. Mm-hmm. Nice. What uh, were you interested in learning? Was there any particular subject or topic that you enjoyed learning as you were growing up? So I loved uh, I loved history. I loved drama. I loved uh, literature. And so as I progressed, uh, so journalism was a, was a big interest of mine. Music as well, interestingly enough, I really enjoyed music. And I've noticed a lot of people in our field have a background in music, so much more than mine. I just kind of, I played the French horn casually, I guess, is the way to put it. But there are a number of really strong voices. David Wiley, uh, who was the founder of the uh, Open Education Conference uh, and very involved with learning artifacts for the past 20 years, his background is in music. Uh, in Um, you know, jazz music, which is kind of fascinating. But so music, drama, history, literature, uh, I, my undergraduate degree is in English. And then I have a master's degree in film from UT Austin. And so I did not expect myself to get a doctorate in education or go into educational administration. I really thought that my future was going to have something to do uh, with performing arts or with teaching performing arts or, or writing. I ended up working at a boutique agency in Hollywood. Uh, I started in the mailroom and I ended up becoming a literary agent for a very short period of time because I really didn't like the work. There was always this feeling of 
no one was happy, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, it's very, a lot of stress. There's a lot of stress in the situation and you're dealing with that stress from all sorts of places. You know, so you have the people who want you to represent them. Then you have the people you're representing but want to work. And then you have the people who are working. Because I did have some, some people who were in my shell that I was handed that were working, but they don't know what their next job's going to be. And so everyone's really nervous. Everyone's really anxious. And that was a very difficult place to be. And I remember this story very well. The head of writing, and I say that very interestingly, there were two of us. There was there was this guy and there was myself, came to my desk one day and said, what are you doing? And I had been sent a query letter. And a query letter is something that a prospective writer sends to an agent. It's two paragraphs. One paragraph is about the story they'd like you to read. And the second paragraph is a little bit about themselves. And you get dozens of these a day. And I was reading one of them and I was making notes on it because there were places that this person could have improved in order to be able to um, get someone to read the script. You read very few scripts of the query letters you get. And I told uh, my boss that I was making some improvements. I was going to send this back. And he said, you're not a teacher. You are an agent. And I thought, you know, this is actually the first thing I've enjoyed doing in this job in months. And I, at that point, went and looked for work in education. And I was fortunate to find a position at a school for students with learning disabilities in the greater Los Angeles area. And I was teaching media at that school. And this is gonna tie back into my original answer. I'm teaching media at that school. Uh, it's a 40% job. So I went from a full-time job to working 40% of the time, trying to live in Los Angeles as a part-time teacher. Uh, and several weeks, several months into it, they realized I understood how computers worked. And the next year when I showed up on day one, I was no longer the part-time media instructor. I was now the director of academic technology uh, because I had understood how computers worked. And my whole scope, my whole life changed at that point because now I was working on the relationship of technology to teaching and learning. And that was 2007. And for the last 13 years, in some capacity, I have always been involved in educational administration, computers, teaching and learning. When did you do your doctor in education? How does this come also together like as you as you continue to work? So so 2007 I am transitioning and I'm still teaching media and interestingly enough so it's a, it's a school for students with learning disabilities a very progressive way of thinking about how education can happen. So in many cases, students are in these little clusters of two and four, and they're engaging with math or literature or science. Uh, and media was something that we engage in that space. So I'm still teaching media. I'm teaching math. I'm sometimes teaching writing. I've kind of all these pieces, and I'm creating technology profiles for all of the students to think about what sort of assistive technology they need in the classroom. And after a couple of years of doing that, I realized it probably wasn't a good thing that my approach to pedagogy was the MacGyver approach, that what did I have in my particular tool bag that I could then display out there? I had never taken one course. I hadn't had one moment of education on education in my life. Uh, so I was kind of pulling things together as I saw fit, but that wasn't the right way to do that for my students. So I was I sought out to get a second master's degree actually because at that point I was thinking well this is you know there's the chance to do educational therapy. I was working with students with learning disabilities and the thought of a doctor it just seemed overwhelming. And I couldn't put together where that was going to relate to my current position. Uh, and interestingly enough, the head of the school that I was working at 
knew somebody at Pepperdine University and said, you know, what you're talking about makes sense for a doctorate, not for a master's. So you should talk to Pepperdine uh, rather than seek out, you know, uh, what you're thinking about here. And so I ended up getting, uh, talking to Pepperdine University and they had been doing an online doctorate for 20 years. And that online was kind of what we call a hybrid approach now. So it was 60% in person, 40% online. And because I lived in Los Angeles and the campus was in West Los Angeles, it was three quarters of a mile of a commute for me during the times that we had uh, in-person instruction. And interestingly enough, my son was born the day I started my program. And it was this odd uh, serendipitous event because part of raising him got to be working with uh, my schooling and all of all of that stuff. So I have so many memories of sitting with him late at night, helping him sleep, doing my course reading. And I got so much course reading done uh, during that important time. So he's asleep and I'm do I'm, I'm reading uh, Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hooks. Uh, and, you know, just th that moment. And it was a strong connection there, but it was also a strong connection to the material. Uh, and so that's what got me into that space. And interestingly enough, this was right around the time of the MOOC explosion or phenomenons of 2012. I needed a dissertation topic and I completely shifted gears and thought, this is interesting. This is a really interesting phenomenon. And who knows what the future of it's going to be, but I'm going to focus there. And that's what moved me from K-12 into higher education was focusing on, on MOOCs. No one was writing about it in late 2012. And I started a blog and suddenly I went from like five people reading my blog to hundreds of people reading my blog because folks wanted to know about MOOCs and I was doing a lit review. Um, and that moved me towards higher education, moved me towards a greater awareness of professional development and eventually into the role that I have today. Beautiful and, and perfect timing with uh, with your son being born. So, but I, I see like you have like different what I call problems mm -hmm. or needs or needs that you you know you want to do something else. But then as you are seeing opportunities, you are building on them, like the MOOC, for example. Because there are people who are listening and thinking, how is he making all these decisions? You know what I call design your learning journey, and ultimately this will lead you down the path, you know, the career path. But we make different choices and decisions, but your ability to leverage, you know, skills, interests, solving problems, addressing needs, seeing opportunities and bringing all that together. Now explains to me everything because I looked what you've done and I was like, oh, there are different things here and there. I'm trying to put them together. You know, how, how does the puzzle fit? And you explain it very, very nice. Thank you. Absolutely. And if I can just, I want to, it's important to know, because I, I appreciate you mentioning that, but these things, and this is one of the reasons that I, I'm, I really love what I do in the community college system right now. Um, student support is vital. And as a white cis normal male, I've had a, a greater opportunity to engage traditional support structures. Even with those, there are still those places where you recognize where the gaps could fall if you didn't have other support. I can think of three people, uh, very importantly, uh, George Valencianos, who's the Canada Research Chair at Royal Roads University, who was an integral aspect of helping me transition from student to professional. Brian Alexander, who has his own consulting company, has been a, a luminary in educational technology for 20 years. He was an undergraduate English professor of mine when I was in undergrad, and both of us ended up in educational technology at the same time, so that mentorship. Uh, and my wife, Rebecca. And every moment that we would be in these situations of, hey, what would you think about me going back to graduate school? 
and talking about what does that look like and where does that go and and, and what does that mean for our future um, and helping orient me in that space. And then also being the you know person who read countless numbers of uh, you know early drafts and uh, you know journal articles and and other pieces and willingness to talk about those those conversations and, and go through that. So I always had various support pieces and how fortunate was I to have that support. So in my work, the key is how do you create those structures for others? Because it doesn't exist as much as it should. The bureaucracy isn't designed to do that. You can only do so much with the bureaucracy, but if we can provide some aspect of that in the institution, hopefully that plus what people are able to put together outside of the institution is enough so folks can make those tough decisions and see them through like I was fortunate enough to be able to do. And thank you so much for making this comment. It's important that we do something about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen on itself. Technology is not going to do it. You know, computers are not going to do it. So this is the human aspect that we need to look after each other. And in, as you said, in your respective roles, and we are going to come to that now, you, this is a big part of how you design programs and systems. It's not only the technology. Okay, so let's come to today. Uh, what, uh, what responsibilities and what roles do you have today? So last year, and interestingly enough, this is my one year anniversary in this position. Last year, I was hired by Skyline College uh, as their Dean of Academic Support and Learning Technologies. And that position kind of is the bridge between academic instruction and student services. So we cover the library, we cover tutoring, test proctoring, other support services that directly relate to the educational experience, Uh, media services, work with technology in and outside of the classroom, professional development, and distance education. So we are in charge of the Center for Transformative Teaching and Learning, which is kind of our professional development organization, which brings in experts from around the campus to live part-time with us to be able to share their expertise outside of that. And we were interested in in really working with the California, the, the state system. So we have a really interesting thing in California. It's the California Virtual Campus. So the 114 California community colleges, I'm not including Calbright, they work a little different than us, uh, but the 114 prior to Calbright have this consortium that gains information and knowledge from one another and shares resources uh, and you want to then be able to exchange courses so if a student wants to take a sociology course and it's not available on their campus or it's full they could take it at another campus online so that was one of the things we were doing prior to the pandemic when uh covid presented itself as momentous and something that everyone was going to need to react to deal with engage we quickly identified where we needed to go for distance education and so the district so i work at skyline college but we're a part of a community college district with the college of san mateo and kenyatta college the san mateo county community college district uh everyone took on some different roles and responsibilities and mine became kind of the outline for education and assessment and we did that in the emergency space for the spring we made a decision in late april or early may to be fully online in the fall And when that came, it was evident that we needed to make sure that everybody had some semblance of distance education training, some sort of professional development. We had probably between 15 and 20% of faculty across the three campuses that had been through a proper course of distance education. And it was recognized that everyone needed to have the opportunity to take that course. 
not just full-time faculty, adjunct faculty, faculty who work in our dual enrollment programs, who work with high schools and with the colleges, faculty who work in our tutoring programs. We have something called Middle College. We have another group called TRIO. All of these different elements, if you're working with students in an instructional capacity, uh, counselors, librarians, you need to have the availability of this professional development. We wanted to bring the foundation of our district up we call ourselves a student-ready district, and I can talk a little bit about what that means later, but mm -hmm. we want to meet students where they are. And that meant everyone needed to raise their game for distance education. And so I kind of, you know, while doing the Skyline job, also became the director of our distance education initiative to ensure that everyone was able to take a course of professional development and come through it. And I can, it, I can announce today, we're almost done with this, but 97% of our faculty will have been through this by the time the fall starts. And for the 3% who haven't, they've still had some engagement with the distance education. Either they started and weren't able to finish, they're gonna finish in the fall, or they were hired too late to take the course, but they have a background in distance ed, and we're going to put them through the course in the fall as well. So at the end of fall 2020, our expectation is that every faculty member teaching in our district will have gone through a 25 hour course on what it means to teach online. Mm -hmm. What do you achieve with this course? So if I'm an educator, faculty or a librarian, what do I learn? What competencies I get? So the course is problem based. So the idea in the course is that you're going to be learning about how to teach online by teaching online. So at the end of taking this course, you will have the, the structure for what it is that you do online. So for most people, that means the shell of and a lot of content for a course. Uh, but for librarians, that could mean working on specific units that can then be embedded into courses. Uh, for counselors, that can mean understanding what a general counseling session can look like or what it is to engage with the various software that counselors are expected to know in doing a course. If you are a support specialist, if you're like one of our full-time tutors or an instructional aide, uh, what is the experience like for students so that you can help mirror that when you are tutoring so that the experience the student has in the classroom when they come to a tutoring session the the, the trappings of that look the same there are five key aspects to what we do there uh, the first one is really understanding the learning management system uh, and what that means and the relationship of learning management to our space another one that we put a lot of stock into is uh technology and equity. You mentioned uh, technology doesn't solve prob uh, everybody's problems. There's a human element to that. Too often we can think that technology is neutral, uh, that just by in involving technology in something, uh, we are going to see something better and there's not a bias with that. We are a student-ready district. We're, we were founded on social justice 50 years ago. Uh, and so integral to our mission is recognizing where the fissures are in institutions and bureaucracies also in technology. Uh, another piece, what is the relationship of the classroom with the other support structures? So as a community college, we're engaging the whole community. It's not just coming in and taking a class, but what does this class mean in regards to your personal environment, your journey, whether that means you're going to transfer to a four-year college or you're getting a certificate for, for a career or a profession? Where are the support structures to help you do that? And how can we show you that those are still alive and vibrant? Uh, content information. So making sure that depending on the specific discipline that you're engaging, you have the tools and the understanding to be able to do what needs to be done in that space. So somebody who's getting a certificate in respiratory care has very particular 
needs around what that is for their field versus somebody who's going to be transferring into a social science. Uh, what are the needs and what are the technologies that work there? And then the last piece would be all of those little tools that we think about, like, like Zoom or uh, Google Docs, the LTI, the learning technology interoperability. How do those work into the class so that it's a seamless transition for the student? It's not expected that everyone who does these things is an expert. I'm a, I'm a proponent of TPAC, technological pedagogical content knowledge. Uh, and so you need to have an understanding of that, but you don't have to have a full expertise there. So if a student comes in and you know is struggling with some piece of technology, you can answer some basic questions and know how to get them to the right place reflexively you have an understanding of how to do some basic pieces and know where to ask the right question if you need to add an advanced layer to one of those three areas. And so within a 25 hour course, those are the main points that we're trying to get through while this, the, the teachers are building the work that they're gonna be using in the fall. Okay, so you have different groups, admin, uh, librarians, tutors, faculty. So they also have different, uh, what you refer to uh, digital literacy and needs so how did like did you customize the offering how did you make sure that everybody was moving forward from the from where they started because not everybody's at the same stage of their journey how did you do that that's a uh really always a difficult thing when you're thinking about professional development because you know they're um they're those graphics that you'll see where you'll you'll have, you know, the percentages of where people engage on technology and you have your early adopters and your innovators on one side. And I forget, I know there's one picture that calls them the laggards, um, you know, or, or even worse than that, the Luddites uh, on another side. And so that misses the point of being student ready. So I mentioned what, what it is to be student ready and to be student ready means that we're going to be reflexive and responsive to the evolving needs of our student population. And one of the things that I picked up, and I'm going to, I want to, I want to credit this was Dr. Rob McKenna, who runs the wild leaders uh, out of Seattle, Washington. Uh, he was a faculty member at Seattle Pacific University when I was the director of academic innovation there. And he said, if you are ready for students, that means you have to be ready for faculty. So I've transitioned that and thought about it. If we're a student ready district, we must also be a faculty ready district, which means we have to be able to flexibly engage on what you were just talking about, all of those different levels of comfort. So you have some people who they're ready to go. This is where they want to be. You have other people who have been actively resisting technology. And it could be for all sorts of reasons. It could be that they struggle with seeing the relationship of technology to their subject matter. Um, and that can happen. So for example, we have people who do EMT training. Uh, that training historically has been fully face-to-face -face because there's a lot you need to be doing face-to-face -face as an EMT. Like The whole rationale of EMT is being able to come into a situation uh, and address the, the reality of the ground. So how does online supplement or augment that. So th from those polls, it really comes down to how do we get those main pieces forward? How do we think about all of the things that we're talking about? Uh, and so like I mentioned, there were five main things. One, you have to have a, a general understanding of technology. Two, you have to have 
and understanding to be able to grow with that technology, what we would call digital literacy. So you don't have to know the tools per se, but you have to know the right questions to be able to, to move the, that forward. Uh, recognizing online as a space for communication. So certainly it's a 24 seven stop for information, but when it's done right and it's done best, it's a place for us to be able to communicate with one another and share collectively and build collectively. I remember a story from a previous experience. I was working with an administrator who was frustrated about all the all the students on their computers. We were in a, a, a student union area and they noted, you know, people don't talk to each other anymore. And I said, well, let's, let's go test this. And we stood up and we walked over and asked what they were doing. They were collaborating on Google Doc. And all four of them that were in this group were on their computers working on the same project. And that was a, a good moment for that administrator to go, wait a second, what I'm seeing, my perception may not be the reality that communication's happening in various ways. And sure, we need to be able to do interpersonal communication, but it's very important to also think about those asynchronous aspects and sometimes the synchronous through technology. Uh, equity is another one that I mentioned previously, and then how that relates to our student support. So because those are our foundational planks and they're evident in our district's mission, vision, and values, we were able to start from that place. So we could look at somebody who had remarkably limited computer skill, the people who will be the first to tell you, I struggle with email, you know, that please come set up my email and I can work that. But the moment that I have to start to think about converting PDFs or accessibility issues or, you know, by gosh, video, I'm, I'm done. Because we were able to say, it's not about that. It's about these core pieces of what it means to be in our district. We had reframed the conversation away from this daunting technological monolith. And instead, we're thinking about it from the perspective of what we always do. So if you're working in our district, you understand the importance of equity. You understand the importance of humanization. Humanization is a new word. You understand, you understand the importance of equity. You understand the importance of humanizing instruction. And so that allows us an opportunity to come in and very thoughtfully engage with people. Now, that's all very Pollyanna to say, well, hey, if we just base it on, you know, our mission, vision, values, that's great. And that, that's a great uh, administrative answer, but it's not a real answer. So we had to then back that up with support. And so what I'm most proud of in the work that we did is we had nearly 50 faculty and staff from within our district supporting this work. So we had facilitators, so people with significant expertise, instructional designers, distance education coordinators, people with years of experience teaching online who taught these courses. And it wasn't a self-paced course, it was a cohort model. So you would have between 25 and 40 people in one of these groups working together across three weeks to engage with the material. There were embedded TAs in each one of the sections. So there was a faculty member who had gone through the training previously who was embedded to help answer questions, to help keep the discussion board moving, to help grade assignments like, you know, setting up a title page or, you know, using the grade book, things like that, and be able to, from the perspective of the learner, and who in this case is a teacher, respond and be very flexible. Uh, we did course reviews for all of these courses. And there's a specific rubric we use in the state of California. Uh, and we amended that and we said, okay, we're going to do a very thoughtful peer review. And we're going to point to this rubric, because if you want this course to be in that course exchange I mentioned earlier, then you'll need to follow this rubric. But right here, all we're going to do is talk about how these pieces that are important to the state relate to what you've done. And we're gonna give you examples of how to further that out. Uh, and then from that point, we had uh, peer mentors or people who would be available to help from the point the course was over to the start of the semester. So people who could answer questions, hold office hours, give feedback on you know assignments or modules or other things that people were doing. So we had a village that we brought together 
that would be on the ground really supporting this work. Um, we ran regular office hours uh, across our three campuses and then together in many cases. And then we brought in some expertise from other places. So we were doing a lot of stuff with information technology on things like converting PDFs for easy signature or running a Zoom meeting, uh, other things that were more technologically focused. Uh, and then we were identifying that in relationship to the pedagogy and team leading these Q&A sessions around that. Uh, our district academic senate also did a number of workshops on what were identified as difficult to teach subjects online. And so we would have roundtable discussions at various times uh, from April to now on what it was for uh, these subjects to be taught online and what were the best practices that existed within our district? How did those relate to some of the research we saw and where could our faculty get a foothold to be ready for the fall? Mm -hmm. So what I hear, Rolin, is clearly you built it with them, not for them. You built, Absolutely. It all, you built it together and then you provided the peer support, the reviews, the, the mentoring, the coaching, basically all the support because there's always support needed as, as we collectively create things. Do you have an example of uh, what is a difficult uh, subject to teach online? Because that would be interesting to discuss. So th there are a couple that we deal with a lot. Uh, lab courses. Um, is one that we talk about in our district a lot. We have a lot of uh, students that are interested in uh, transferring to four years. And so science with lab is very important. Uh, and then another one's going to be a performing arts course, whether that's going to be music or drama or some sort of studio-based art. Those are the two areas that I think are most common. Because we're a community college, we do have a number of other programs. Like I mentioned, EMT, we have automotive, cosmetology, wellness. Uh, but for a general audience, I think that everyone's dealing with performing arts and science labs. And is there a good practice that you learned as you were uh, having the roundtables and the new discussions on that? So as far as the lab courses went, I think the main key was what is the purpose of the lab? So within a, the state of California and the bureaucracy we need to go through, there are particular student learning objectives and outcomes that we must meet in order for our courses to articulate to a four-year. And can we identify what was supposed to happen in the lab that is more difficult to do, or in some cases impossible to do, because of being in a global pandemic where you're sheltering in place, not able to access the lab? That doesn't nullify the purpose of the lab, but it allows us to recognize where are those lab software pieces like Labster available to be utilized properly, and where are the places that we could rethink the lab entirely. If we want to meet that objective, what can we do in order to build you know, um, curriculum contents instruction that still meets that objective without doing the lab. So if you're utilizing, and, and I'm not a lab scientist, I don't want to speak as a lab scientist, but if you need to be using a Bunsen burner, clicking on a button on your screen isn't the same as the proper safety of being able to do that. But if the purpose of the lab is to engage on a particular topic, there are a number of things we can do research-wise. There are a number of things you could even do at home to be able to identify with that learning objective. And that allows us to focus more on how we then go back, if that means we have to have kind of a hybrid course where some people come in and engage those aspects of the lab that have to be face-to-face. -face. It helps mitigate those aspects um, and in some cases allows us to rethink the lab completely. Yeah, and you had to figure out and be more creative. Like, how can I get this experience, but maybe in a different way? Or how, how can I learn this maybe at home? And if that's not possible, how can I create a safe setup so I can be in person? 
So exactly. a lot of creativity and a lot of obstacles like to basically turn upside down and figure out how to do something. And one of the things, and this is, you know, we, th we think about bureaucracy as this, this, this great set of rules and regulations. Um, and I, I think one of the reasons I've ended up in administration is I like to think of bureaucracy in a, in a way kind of as a puzzle of, you know, the people who created these structures and they can get very overblown, but they did it so they could ensure a semblance of equity for the process. So if we're thinking about lab, we have these learning objectives that we want to meet that is required so we know they articulate because there's a purpose for that. So by being able to, to dial down on the objective and then rethink it, we can kind of clear away all of the traditional, well, this is how we always do things, you know, so we have to continue to do it in that regard. We can move away from that and instead focus on, well, what is it that we're trying to do? What is the goal here? Ideally, we would do that in a lab, but we can't right now. So what can we do to match that so that the student has that experience and can meet that outcome and not meet it in a perfunctory checkbox sort of way, but so that they've lived that, that they've transformed in the same way they would have transformed if they were in the lab. Um, and that moves to the second piece, which is the same thing about performing arts. The difficult aspect of doing performing arts, obviously uh, bringing ensemble together, whether it's a, a dramatic play or a musical ensemble is very difficult, uh, if not impossible. And in many cases, the people who are teaching these courses don't have the technological understanding to be able to, to bring those together. So how do you recognize what's important in that space? And what's important in those spaces is kind of the feedback aspect of a masterclass. So if you are doing some sort of, you know, uh, drawing or other piece, how can we use the technology we have at home to record technique and to record those pieces? As somebody with a background in, in media, what's always very powerful to me are the simple things like a GoPro over the shoulder that helps you understand technique, uh, whether that technique is going to be in drawing or in pottery. Um, I saw a great video once that was talking about costume design and it was showing somebody how to do a particular stitch and the camera was over the shoulder, kind of like it was set up, you know, um, like an old cooking show with Julia Child. Uh, it was over the shoulder in order to be able to help the person visualize what it looked like. So it wasn't a, a zoom screen like this where you were gonna pan down. Very small uh, production requirements in order to do that but that then allowed the students to try and mimic the particular stitch. Those elements can come together in a performance art piece that allows you to more tailor that instruction. But then also, how can we rethink the time of the instructor to be able to give feedback uh, in those places? Because that becomes the most important element of what we're doing is being able to address the particular needs of the student for their growth, whether that's in uh, speech and language, musical performance, and some sort of creative art. How can we use technology to, I guess, advance further equity, social justice, cultural awareness? How can we, do you have a couple of, let's say, suggestions or insights, how to use that to, to, to make progress on, on uh, bigger challenges we are facing? It's a, that's a big question. Um, I think that the first piece that comes up is the recognition of and the awareness that the playing field is not even or neutral. And so what we're thinking about when it comes to technology, it's a different experience, regardless of us saying that it's, you know, a universal interface. I think about um, proctoring software and the difficulties for facial recognition for people of color. 
that are very different from white cisnormal users. So knowing that that exists and being aware of that and recognizing that there's a consistent bias in these places, being able to have that as a foundation for whatever conversation we're having is paramount. With that, how can we create safe and thoughtful places of trust to be able to build online, to be able to build this, this work? So if I am an instructor, I need to be able to trust that what I'm receiving from my students is authentically from them because it's my responsibility to provide them education and be aware that learning and transformation happens so I can move them on to the next part of their their journey. I believe that education is about helping people be publicly useful and privately content. George Siemens shared that with me and I know he received that from somewhere else, but I love that answer. And so if that's my responsibility, I have to ensure that the person I'm, I'm working with does that. Uh, but how can we build trust in that space? And uh, I'm not going to say proctoring software is not the answer to that, but I think that there are so many things that we don't normally think about. Uh, authentic assessment creation in that space, um, encouraging regular thoughtful feedback uh, amongst people, uh, creating group work, identifying how various subjects can relate to building various projects. What makes a great community college instructor is somebody who says, I want to teach intro to this subject every semester for 25 years. And I want to learn along with the field as the subject is changing and then address that. But I'm more than happy to teach intro to blank for the rest of my career. And if that's the case, then how do you build those those assessments so that they are engaging the community, they are engaging the student, they're allowing you to be able to have project-based and iterative assessments and capstones. Um, not being afraid to move past the conventional wisdom and the assumptions that we normally see and how education works and how education manifests, because those can be assumptions about our content, but they can also be assumptions about our student population. Uh, what it means, whether it's a, a millennial or a Generation Z, those terms that are almost pejorative, how do we rethink that in the manner in which we're engaging with our students? Uh, and then what can we do to make sure that within these courses, within this study, we're not just paying lip service to social justice, equity, access, inclusion, but we're actually addressing these topics. And if I am a faculty member, so I, I have a master's in film, if I was going to be teaching early film, how do I address the fact that the majority of early film was created by white men in positions of power, how do I deal with the fact of somebody like a D.W. Griffith, who was a revolutionary filmmaker, but uh, was remarkably racist, both in his films as well as in his public discourse, uh, and many of the things he took were borrowed. So you have to talk about Griffith, but how do I talk about Griffith in a way that recognizes that while also recognizing the contribution? Too often we focus on the contribution. We have to be able to weigh both at the same time. Um, and so identifying those places within all of our various curricula uh, and being able to have those conversations and note that, yeah, film for 130 years, a lot of that was built on prejudice and inequality. And so what does that mean for what we're doing today? What does that mean for what we see today? And how can we be different going forward? And be willing to, to create these conversations, which is also 
you know, showing up, keeping the promise we've made, because education is not only learning certain uh, topics or building skills, it's also creating good human beings. You know, they will have good life for themselves and their families and society. So how do we actually, because some of these conversations are very challenging to have. The example you mentioned is brilliant. You, 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 we must acknowledge the, the content and the work because we can learn from it. And also talk about the, the human aspect and the racism and the social justice in parity. So, and I think that's the tough job of an educator. Like when I think of educators, I really think that that's the tough job to be able to create a conversation that you, you are honest, you speak your truth but also you encourage a broader conversation so students can make up their mind, you know, because that's also something we need to, we need to have human beings that they can decide for themselves. You know, if you, if, if you say something and they don't agree, they, they stand up for themselves and they say, you know what, I have a different opinion. Like this kind of things to me, that's where I think is where education does what it's supposed to be doing. You are absolutely right. And I, I, I think about there's somebody else I want to, I want to note in this moment, but, um, it is really important when we don't have the answer to be vulnerable and to say, you know, this isn't, this isn't the place I have the answer. However, because we're on an educational journey, let's go here. Let's do this together. I think about Paul Sparks, who was uh, the head of the doctorate in education for learning technologies at Pepperdine University. And he was a professor of mine. And I remember the first time uh, I was in class with him, his first day, he said, I look forward to learning with you. And I was a little frustrated by the comment because I thought it's your job to teach me not to learn alongside one another, but it was so powerful when Paul would be in moments and we'd be talking about something and say, you know what, I, I don't have an answer for that. This is, I can talk to you about ethics. I can talk to you about learning theory. I don't know how that relates to this broader social topic. So let's learn about that together. Let me see if I can find somebody to come in and talk to our class, or let me see if I can find a reading and move forward. And so I mentioned film. Most people who have a background in film, you know, and there's 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 a broad number of great, you know, film historians uh, who can speak to uh, inequality. But for those who can't, who don't have that background, who don't have that history, the willingness to say, "I don't know." So rather than saying, "Well, let's just focus on D.W. Griffith's editing technique," let's find those people who can speak to this and can talk and can contextualize the work. And who did he, you know, who was kept down at this point? And what does it mean that we continue to do this? The willingness to be vulnerable in that space is uh, such a powerful experience. It's humbling for the uh, for the faculty member, but it also can be liberating because what it allows for the growth of that community is paramount. You wrote a manifesto against EdTech <laughs> during emergency online pivot, and I really enjoyed it. As we build successful education programs, what do we need to keep in mind? So the manifesto against EdTech during a pandemic, um, this was written, I guess, late March, early April. And it was at a time when everyone, you know, we were sheltering in place and everyone was moving online. And for many people, this was their first experience with that. And so a number of vendors were coming out and saying this, you know, plug A into B and you're going to get your solution. And that's there is a place to talk about all of the different tools and technologies that are available. But when everyone's moving at breakneck speed to just ensure quality education in that moment, it's the wrong time to be working in that space. And so where the manifesto came from and why I think it's still pertinent when we're when our pandemic is not an emergency, but it's a way of life. What is the 
knowledge base of the person who's coming into this work. So I was reading an interesting article this morning, actually, um, from Forbes that said that the average American is working 48 more minutes a day. And that time is almost exclusively spent on email or in meetings. Two things that create a very negative uh, stress occurrence inside of the body. So we've increased the work that we're doing during this time. Many people are getting paid less. Uh, and that work that we're doing has a greater amount of stress to it. So if you're going to take all of that and then say you need to learn this new software in order to be successful for your for your students, that's just such a recipe for burnout or problem or, you know, other fissures that can happen. So what can we think about in this time? What are what do we all have? What do we all know? And then how can we build from there? And so what I was talking about in particular with EdTech was what are the tools we have? So rather than using April of 2020 as the time to learn how to do lecture capture, maybe now's the time to think about what is it that I want from lecture capture? What is the purpose of my lecture capture? If my lecture capture is to share some sort of content, what other ways currently exist to do that? Is there information already out there that I can seek? Can I work with a librarian? Can I work with you know other support structures to do that? And if not, is capturing my lecture on this software where I'm taking my hour and hopefully cutting it up, but maybe not, is that the best use of my time? And if not, what tools do I have? Can I use my phone and record some real short audio segments? Um, could I go and record myself just giving a few minute conversation? And even is, it, is the content the right place to do that? Or is that somewhere where I check in? I use my visual presence to check in with the students and say, hey, I'm still here. I know you're still here. How are we working through this together? So if we were to think about technology from that perspective, and that's the work that we're doing uh, with ed tech, what changes about how we identify a vendor? What changes about how we identify the tools and the solutions that we're, we're getting into? What I think happens is we start with a more, more solid foundation that's much smaller, and then we bring these pieces in as necessary um, and recognize that the benefit of those pieces is for the student rather than trying to keep some sort of enterprise bottom line. Um, as somebody whose job it is to keep up with budgets and keep up with those pieces, I know that that's difficult because you know, I can be promised regularly that this piece of software is going to make my life easier. But one of the things that I've experienced is when we think about software, it usually, there are three main users of academic software, the student, the faculty member, and the administrative body. It's not going to be a perfect solution for all three of those. So who's getting the most benefit out of that? And I would always pivot to the fact that it needs to be the students or the faculty, but the administrative aspect of it is the one that we might need to build some processes on top of. Too often, I think we adopt software because we as administrators understand how it relates, but we don't have the same recognition of, of the relationship of learning or in bad cases, the fallout that goes to the students. So if we think about that manifesto against ed tech, and I start out saying, I don't have the time to learn this now. So what is it that I truly want out of this technology? That is going to influence now that we're in August, September, and we're in this space for a longer period of time. And whatever normal is, is not going to be that anymore. We're going to have more of this technology. We're going to have more hybrid, hybrid or high flex. What do we need the technology to do to get to that core piece of uh, transforming people, like you mentioned, so that they can be you know, citizens of, of justice and happiness? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. You, you close your manifesto with uh, some excellent words, I'm paraphrasing, you say that uh, there is plenty of magic in education using what we have right now while we recognize the power of people. 
What does this mean to you? Uh, I think that it comes back to the importance of the community that we have. So I mentioned earlier in this conversation that when people realize the power of telecommunications and what that meant for learning. We've been trying to uh, use technology for learning since the penny post. 150 years ago, the people from various geographic locations could engage with education. Then we had radio, then we had television. But the internet created something different because you had a two-way communication. Uh, that it wasn't anymore just the sender giving it out to a receiver, but the receiver could now send back. And that relationship allows for the ability to handle complex problems together and bring in different constituencies to talk about that. That's the key point of technology. That's the key point of ed tech, is how do we bring all these people together around a topic so that when the event is over, everyone is better for it. So that's the beauty of the human interaction and the beauty of the technology. And I really hope that as we're moving into fall, and I know a lot of schools are struggling right now, there was a lot of hope that we could open back up. And I'm at a uh, campus that was fortunate, we made the decision very early to stay online. Um, and it's still the, the most difficult work I've ever done is preparing to go into the fall. I know, I can't imagine what that's like for people who are having to pivot uh, at this time now. So how do we continue to remember that the most important resource that we have as educators, as administrators, as universities, as schools, are the, are the people, are the students, the faculty, the staff that are working together to try and make a better world? And how do we support them in that work to be successful? Beautiful. My favorite question, what is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? That's a wonderful question. Um, I've always thought of myself in administration as a producer. So if you think about film, the producer is the person who... Uh, starts on the project and sees it through to distribution. But you never see an award in the Academy Awards for Best Producer. There's Best Director, there's Best Actor, Best Cinematographer, all these different pieces. Um, so I guess what I would say is I think that I know that I've done my job if everyone else is benefiting without the signaling that has to go along with that, that we've been able to create uh, a better world for everybody else. And the people who were fully involved in that creation are the ones that are getting the credit. It's not the, you know, administrators, we, we, we get to, we get to be administrators and there's a lot of benefit to getting to be an administrator. And uh, I think the main focus in that and our responsibility is to make sure to set up everybody who we have the four, all the professionals, we have the fortune to get to work with to set them up for success. And so If I have been able to set my teams up to be as successful as possible, I've done my job. Excellent. Thank you so much, Rolin. That was such an insightful uh, discussion. Thank you for sharing all of the learnings from the last few months that I'm sure will resonate with a lot of our listeners. Thanks again. Maria, thank you. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.